He came to make me a trophy of the grace of God. What God can only pull off by His grace. He came to make me more like Jesus Christ. Why? So that He might be the firstborn. You could translate it. So that He might have preeminence. That He might have priority among God's people. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. One of the most quoted Bible verses amongst Christians is Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Unfortunately, too often we focus on the part of Scripture that emphasizes for good and choose to ignore His purpose. As we pick up in our message, The Providence of God, Pastor Brogy reminds us that whatever happens in the life of a believer is under God's control, and that words like happenstance and luck should not even be in the Christian's vocabulary. There's no such thing as luck. All things, big or small, good or bad, spiritual or unspiritual, are filtered through the providential hand of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together. He does not say that you will see all things working together. Sometimes you do in hindsight, but sometimes even in hindsight, you have no idea what God is doing. Paul says we see in a mirror dimly. We only know in part, but God sees everything and God knows in full. Years ago, my dad sent me a package through the mail, and it was a uh, crossword puzzle, uh, not a crossword, a jigsaw puzzle with 800 pieces. And I felt a certain obligation to put it together with my children because my dad looked so hard to find one with a, a biblical motif, and he, he thought we would enjoy that. And I looked at that, and we dumped out the box, and I thought, we'll, we'll, we'll never get this thing together. But, you know, we got the corner pieces, we found those first, and then you began to find the straight edges, and after a while, the whole thing came together, and it was a beautiful puzzle. Now, sometimes when you go through frustrations that overwhelm you or confuse you or even depress you, sometimes you can't even find the corner pieces. You can't even find the straight edges. But if you view these things as coming independently of the hand of God, then you're not going to respond in faith as we should. God sees infallibly with a completed picture that is in mind that all things are working together for good. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 28, Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33, this is certainly a link to this verse. Let me read that verse to you. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom in knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. God's judgments, God's wisdom is unsearchable. It is unfathomable. You cannot fully plunge to the depths of the wisdom of God Almighty. And so you have to rest by faith that He is in control. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Please notice the verse does not say that God causes all things to occur. Because God is not the author of evil. The prophet Habakkuk says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. The apostle James wrote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Nor does the verse say that all things are good. 
If someone breaks into your home and robs you, if someone rapes your spouse, that's not good. That's an evil. So precisely, what does Romans 8.28 teach? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It teaches that everything is working together for our best interest. See that those two words work together. It's one word in the original. It's the Greek word, synergeo. We get our word. You can hear it. Synergism from it. You know what synergism is? I looked it up in the dictionary this week. Here's Webster's. It says, the joint action or agents or conditions or circumstances brought together that the total effect is greater than the sum of the individual effects. Romans 8.28 tells us that there is a working together, there is a synergism, and the events and the circumstances of life, because God has a greater purpose in view, and namely, it is our good. When my grandfather, Patrick Sweeney, died, he was 86 years old, the same age my mother is this morning, or actually in a, in a week. And uh, one week before he died, God gave me the opportunity to lead him to Jesus Christ. It's like God kept me alive, or kept him alive until Carl Brogy received Christ, because I was the only one in his 86 years who ever shared the gospel with him. And he bowed his head and he received Christ. And a week later, he died. And when he died, you know how it is. You go through the house and there was this big clock that set up in his mantle. And it sat there for years. And it was usually never wound because it just, just didn't work right. And nobody wanted it. And so I got it. And I took it home. And for over 30 years, it sat in my bedroom up there in the third floor of where my parents lived and until my dad died. And eventually my mom moved to another place. And we cleaned out that house. And eventually that old clock went into the garbage. Now, as a young man, I tried to fix that clock. I took the back off and watched some of those gears moved. And I figured, well, if nothing else, it tells the right time at least two times a day, right? So anyway, uh, some of the gears were big and some were small and some moved one way and some faster and some slower, but some actually went in reverse order. And if you don't understand clocks, and I certainly didn't, I thought, man, this doesn't make much sense. This guy must have been on drugs when he put this thing together. No wonder it doesn't work. I mean, some of the wheels are moving in the opposite direction as the hands should be moving. No wonder it doesn't function well. I just didn't understand the purposes. Listen, some of you came here this morning and you feel like you are having a very, very bad day. Some of you feel like you just finished a very, very bad week. But from God's perspective, in His synergism, He wants to pull the circumstances of life together and work them out for a good purpose. They are somehow working together for good. And so from God's perspective, you may actually be having a very, very good week and a very, very good day because He promises from His Word that He works all things together for good. Again, not everything is good, but everything is working ultimately for our good. Now, prosperity theology maintains that the good is either physical healing or physical wealth, and that if the sinner has enough faith to believe it, that you can be wealthy and healthy and kept from a lot of suffering and harm. And if you're not, it is a problem of your faith. That borders heresy. In fact, it is heresy. But it fills auditoriums, and it makes people feel good. But I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to tell you the truth. But the truth should make you feel good because it's liberating. Before we're done with this chapter, he's going to talk about persecution when we come down to verse 35. 
And he's going to tell us even in persecution, God's love is being shown. And in the adverse circumstances of life, God is working everything for good. That's his ultimate plan. Now, please understand the promise and the plan can easily be misunderstood and misapplied if you don't understand the people to whom the promise and the plan is given. This promise, this plan is qualified for certain people. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. He's talking about people who know the Lord. To those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it may be true, and I think it certainly is, that there are times when God and the life of the unbeliever works things together for his good because God wants to bring that person to faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the Protestant reformers referred to as common grace, that common goodness that God shows in the details of life. And so Jesus can say, he, the Lord, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But please don't miss the all things as it's related to God's people. He's not talking about lost people, people who've never received Jesus as Lord. You know, and you will hear lost people say, well, you know, everything has a purpose. Where do they get that thought from this verse? Or some of them will even say, well, you know, the good book says everything's going to work out okay. But that's not a promise given to lost people. It's a promise given to God's people. In fact, if you have the King James, notice it translates it just a little bit differently. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called. Now, the word the, the article, is not there in the original Greek. But the translators of the King James put it there. They made it a little more wooden, but it's illuminating because they want you to understand that this is not a verb in English. This is actually an adjective in Greek. And so they put the called because God is not referring to anybody and everybody, but to those who are the called of God. He's speaking here of believers. So there's the providence of the Spirit in prayer. There's the providence of the Father in the particulars of life. Third and finally, there's the providence of the Son in predestination. The providence of the Son in predestination. Now, if we really want to understand verse 28, we have to examine verse 29 to understand the purpose that God has in view. If God works all things together for good, then what is that good that he is working for? Well, certainly he is working for our good because we're his children. And God in his goodness, sometimes because he recognizes that we are self-absorbed or independent or self-reliant, needs to bring some things into our life to refine us and to make us dependent and more like Jesus Christ. So certainly part of the good that God brings involves both the blessings and the trials of life. But he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for, in other words, let me explain. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I can't wait to get to the next sermon in this series. We're going to talk about predestination. For those whom he foreknew, and by the way, I can hardly wait to see what I'm going to say. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election are often mixed up and brought together. But they are actually technically, biblically, two distinct separate teachings in the Bible. Most of the time when people talk about the doctrine of predestination, they're thinking, well, God saved some to go to heaven and he made others to go to hell. Now, I'm going to show you that God did not predestine people to go to hell. 
And you're just going to have to wait for that. And I hope you will come with an open mind. Now, my car will be gassed out in the front lot. I'll be ready to leave because I know you'll want to stone me, some of you. But we'll love each other through it. But understand that it's kind of like, um, like the word charismatic. You know, we talk about charismatic Christians. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about those Christians typically who say, speak in tongues. But in the truest sense... All Christians are charismatic, right? Because the word charisma means gift. And if you know your Bible, you know that every born-again, blood-bought child of God on their spiritual birthday is given a special gift by the Spirit of God in which to serve the people of God. So in one sense, we're all charismatic Christians, but we use that in a broad sense to refer to a particular brand of Christianity. Or sometimes we use the word uh, predestination to refer to the doctrine of election. But the two are different. Now, God elects people, and we're going to see. That's not an issue. No one debates whether God elects. What they will debate is how does God elect? On what basis does he elect? And that's what we're going to explore. But understand the doctrine of predestination is God, when he saves you, after he saves you, his unfailing commitment, his unrelenting, unending commitment to make you like his son. That's the good that God is after. That's the good that God was after in this past week. Some of you were were stressed and God was after a good in your life. And so there is a meeting of your good and God's good, and it's to make us like his son, which will ultimately be seen and completed when Jesus comes back. But there's a purpose in your sickness. There's a purpose in the physical disease you, some of you have here today. There's a purpose in your cancer. There's a purpose in your ornery boss. There's a purpose in some of your financial stresses and on and on and on we could go. And so it's very, very important that we do not divorce verse 28 from verse 29, or you will miss the point. If you read verse 28 all by itself, you might say, well, uh, I got a blowout this week. But the blowout was right next to a tire store. Talk about God working all things together for good. Well, that certainly would be an expression of God working all things together for good. There are no coincidences for the child of God. But if that's all you see, you've missed the point. Because God has a bigger point. Maybe God wanted you to be stranded five miles from a tire store because he wanted you to share the gospel with someone. Or maybe God wanted you to be five miles from a tire store because God wanted to build some character in your life. And so the good that he's referring to is not just to make you happy, but to make you holy to make you more like Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore that in great depth in our next couple of hours together. Let me try to apply this passage this morning. Let me suggest three applications as I close. Number one, I want to encourage you to thank God the Holy Spirit for His ministry to you in prayer. Thank God the Holy Spirit for His ministry to you in prayer. You might want to write these down and go home and think about them this afternoon or tomorrow morning in your quiet time. Now, we've studied how the Spirit intercedes for us. And if you've not already done so, you might want to underline the Spirit Himself intercedes. The Holy Spirit does not want anyone else to replace Him. He could have appointed cherubim or seraphim to intercede for you. He could have made the rocks or the clouds cry out and intercede for you. He could have been satisfied with with other people who pray on your behalf. But he himself wants to be personally involved in praying for you. Again, this is his love in action. 
And sometimes when we go through a trial, the enemy tries to convince us that we're all alone and that you have to go through this alone and God doesn't really care. Well, Satan is a liar and he is the father of liars. And that's the kind of lie that he will often use in the life of the child of God to try to knock him off course. Now, I didn't point it out, but I probably should have. If you will look in verse 26, he himself intercedes for us. You see that word us? Look at it in your text. How is it different? I heard someone say it. It's italicized. What does that mean? It means it's not in the original Greek text. The translators added it because it's implied in the Greek New Testament. But you could put your own name in there. You might want to circle it and put a little margin, a little arrow out in the margin and say, God the Holy Spirit intercedes for Carl, for Audrey, for Jameson, for Anthony, for Chris, for David, for Tanisha. God intercedes personally for you. Hey, that's freeing. That's liberating. That's exciting. So thank the Holy Spirit for his ministry to you in prayer. Secondly, thank God the Father for his ministry to you in your circumstances. Now, Romans 8.28 has a bad rap in evangelicalism today because for the last 25 years or so, pub psychology has walked in the front door of the modern church. Now, while I agree it would be very insensitive in some disasters for me just to say, well, praise the Lord, you know, Romans 8.28. Oh, your child died? Praise God that he was run over with a car. Just Romans 8.28. Oh, your husband left you? Just Romans 8.28. Oh, your mother died? You just need to Romans 8.28. On the other hand, we have Christians who walk around feeling sorry for themselves, who never really move forward, and they're always complaining about their circumstances, the injustices in their life, their family heritage, their finances, many times the bad health that they feel like they've been dealt. And there are churches that build on this, and they have support groups that all focus all around this. And sometimes all it does is perpetuate an attitude of ingratitude. My wife and I were talking this week, and she was saying, you know, when, when you thank God, that's humility. And when you don't thank God, that's pride. Because we feel like we're owed something. The only thing God owed me was the wrath my sin deserves. God commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You lose your job. You're supposed to say, thank you, God. I trust you that you're going to use this in my life for good. Your doctor tells you you have a malignancy. And you say, thank you, Heavenly Father, that even in this sickness that has come upon me for living in this fallen world, that you are somehow going to use it for good. Some people think that's foolishness to give thanks in everything. It's not foolishness. It's the will of God for our lives. He commands it. But we can do it when we understand the providence of the Father in all of our circumstances, that He is working everything for our good. And one thing I am asking God to help me with, that instead of constantly praying about some of the things that are on my mind, just to thank Him first for those things that are on my mind. Try that this week. There's a freedom. There's a joy that fills the human heart when we do that. And it takes faith to see that. And listen, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me this morning. God wants to apply this to each and every one of you. Have you, have you said, thank you, Lord, for the loss of a loved one? Thank you, Lord, for the heart problems I have, the liver problems I have. 
Thank you, Lord, that my financial empire crumbled and we went bankrupt. Thank you, God, that I am discriminated against racially, educationally, socially. You may be thinking only a fool would thank God for such things. Not if you believe that God works everything together for good. God has commanded us to give thanks in all things, and He gives us a good reason in which to do it. So thank the Holy Spirit for His ministry to you in prayer. Thank the Father for His ministry to you in the circumstances of life. And finally, I want to encourage you to thank God the Son for His commitment to make you like Himself. In 1976, a friend invited me to go to an evening service at Park Street Congregational Church in Boston. I almost didn't go. And I'm so glad I went. Because that night, Corey Temboom was speaking. And many of you know of her. She was a spiritual giant in the 20th century. She was a great woman of God. She lived in Germany, and God used her to spare the lives of thousands of Jews from the death camps. In the process, she saw her own father and mother slaughtered. While in prison, she saw her own sister die. And she experienced intense hardship. But she let God use her to rescue thousands of Jews from the Nazi death camps. And I remember her speaking that night, and she was trying to illustrate Romans 8, 28 and 29. And she held up a cross stitch. And we saw the backside of it. It was just a bunch of knots and threads going a million ways, and it made absolutely no sense. Then she turned it over, and it was the picture of a beautiful crown. And she was trying to illustrate to us a truth that many times we see life from the backside, but God sees it from heaven. God sees it from a different perspective. All we can see is the underside, but God sees the top side. And God sees the finished product. And the finished product is that He has predestined us to become like His Son. Look at verse 29 again. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Why? So that, here's the reason, so that He, the Lord Jesus, would be firstborn among many brethren. Now, we'll study that in detail next time. But listen. God, when God saved Carl Brogy in January of 1975, he came not only to save me from the penalty of my sin, he came to save me from myself. He came to make me a trophy of the grace of God. What God can only pull off by his grace. He came to make me more like Jesus Christ. Why? So that he might be the firstborn, you could translate it, so that he might have preeminence, that he might have priority among God's people. It simply means that God is making you like Christ, not to show you off, but to show off Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we will discover in the next few studies together that God is going to do this. And we're going to look at five links in a change from God foreknowing us to God glorifying us. And they're all in a past tense and not by accident. Because what God began, God will definitely complete. He is going to finish it. But when Jesus Christ comes back, He's going to take some of us up as babes in Christ. He's going to take some of us up as mature believers. He wants to take us up all as mature if we've had a chance to walk with Him unless we had a deathbed conversion. He wants to take us up as mature. He'll take us up. But He wants to grow us up. 
Now, if you've never met Christ, if you don't know in the next 10 seconds that if you were to die, you would go to heaven, friend, all of the circumstances that are happening in your life are ultimately in vain if you die lost. And God won't take you up. He will ultimately take you down. And He will take you to a place of unending judgment originally prepared for the devil and his angels. He wishes that not for anyone. He wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But that is the sad reality for many. The living God is here this morning. And He's speaking to some of you. And some of you need today to come to the Father through Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God convicts you and woos you and loves you to Himself. Let's bow together in prayer. God loves you. He has a plan for you, but you must first come and receive the forgiveness that God provided through His cross for this process of change to transpire. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who's revealed Himself in three co-equal, inseparable persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And today, if you have never received Christ as your Savior, you may not understand a whole lot, but you understand you're a sinner. And you understand because God wrote His law into your hearts that you have offended God Almighty. And God wants to forgive you and He's provided a way of escape. The God who set the penalty paid it in His Son. Jesus bore every ounce of punishment for every sin you've committed or might yet commit. And so God can promise if you will call on the name of Jesus, He will save you. Would you do that this morning? Would you humble yourself and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. But I thank you that you came to earth and you took my judgment. You took the punishment I deserve. And so I come upon you, the resurrected Savior, and I ask you, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, help someone today by the Spirit of God to call Christ Lord. And help the rest of us who have done that to understand your providential care in every dimension of life that a hair can't even fall to the ground apart from your sovereign providential care. Help us to understand that in our weakness, when we don't know how to pray as we should, that the Spirit of God intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Thank You that in Your providence You are working everything together for good and that Your Son has committed Himself to forming His own character in us that He might be glorified above all else. We sang it this morning. We sang of His name, how wonderful His name is. May His name in our lives receive glory. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in Your name and for Your name's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled, The Providence of God, use the Search the Scriptures app with Dr. Carl Brogy available in the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. With this app, you can not only hear today's study from Romans 8, but listen to all the messages in this series and all the other books of the Bible taught by Dr. Brogy. You can also listen to it on your computer by visiting our website, searchthescriptures.org, and looking under the Resources tab. Finally, if you would like a CD or DVD copy of any message, simply call us at 
888-447-7478 and ask for whatever program you wish. We hope this teaching program is not only an encouragement to you, but that you're growing in your faith in Christ. If you can help support this ministry with a one-time gift or by becoming a regular supporter, call us at 877-787-7478 and find out about becoming a Search the Scriptures partner. Tomorrow, we begin a look at God's foreknowledge. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.